Hello and welcome. You're listening to Do Less Bad, that podcast about how companies can do less bad in order to do more good. Let's get right into it with your co-hosts, Jason and Madeline. And welcome back to another week of Do Less Bad, a new way to do more good. I'm your co-host, Jason Anthoyne. I run a firm called Audacity, and we help companies inform, involve, and inspire their employees. You can find out more at thinkaudacity.com. I am joined, as always, by co-host Madeline Temple. Madeline. Thanks, Jason. I'm the brand strategist behind Collective Identity. In my day job, I tell companies how to talk about who they are and what they do to employees, customers, investors, partners, journalists, and six-year-olds. You can find out more at thecollectiveidentity.com. And we're back after our first two-week break. And we're now going back to a schedule where we'll be coming on every two weeks. So this week, we're talking about the consequence of erudite vernacular utilized irrespective of necessity. In other words, the (laughs) price you pay for using big words. (laughs) Those are some quite big words there. They are. And the title of that article, it was written by... Daniel Oppenheimer. And what I loved about the title and the paper itself is it won him the 2006 Ig Nobel Prize in Literature for the Masterpiece. (laughs) The Ig Nobel Prize. I love it. The Ig Nobel. So it's not just the Nobel, it's the (laughs) Ig Nobel. But what the Ig Nobel is about, (laughs) it is an award. Uh, It's given to 10 recipients for unusual or trivial achievements in scientific research. (laughs) But it's the type of research that first makes people laugh and then think. And that's exactly what his title does. And his title, actually, and what his paper does, syncs up so well with what I do and talk about ad nauseum. But it really is about this thing of how do you use clear, simple, true communications? And in this case, we're really talking about language. So one of the main points of what he's writing about and what this title is about, big words make us look stupid. They actually (laughs) do it. it. Because typically people think it's, people think it's the opposite usually. They do. And you know what? I am going to go on record because we're doing a podcast, so I am on record. But apparently our teachers lied to to us when we were kids and they said, use big words or use long words, you know, because they make you look smart. And actually Oppenheimer's research shows that there's a negative relationship between complexity and judged intelligence. So what that means is the bigger the words we use, the less intelligent we appear, which is big words make us look stupid. That is unbelievable. That is the opposite of everything that teachers and, you know, journalism professors and everyone's always said, you know, because you want to demonstrate some sort of level of expertise. And in doing so, you appear too smart, which makes you almost stupid. (laughs) Well, that's exactly right. And in fact, you know, while Oppenheimer was talking about words and length, that really my work in communications, I'm sure yours has shown this too, that when we use less common words, so regardless of word length, But if we use big words, it yields the same confusion because, you know, I always kind of joke, okay, why a say when we can analyze? Why pretend when Mm -hmm. we can protect? We use these big words because we think they make us sound smart. But actually what they do is they put a barrier between us and our reader or us and our listener, whoever you're talking or writing for. It just puts a barrier between you and the audience. Mm -hmm. And I think it makes things, like you said, a little 
more complicated than they should be. And I think a lot of times, at least from what I've seen, is that when people do that, it's because they want whatever it is they're doing to feel or appear more strategic or more official. And so, oh, we got to give it a big formal name. And all that does is just, like you said, you know, drive a wedge between who you are trying to appeal to and what you're trying to appeal with. And it just, it's, it's overly complicated for no reason other than it just sounds better, but it actually isn't more effective. It isn't. In fact, what you want to use are simple common words, and that's what makes us sound smart. So an example that I always use, and this is from the UK, and so this was back in 1979, and the country was in a state of chaos. They had blackouts. They were at three-day working weeks. They were racking up huge debt. Labor was in power. And the conservatives were running a campaign. Margaret Thatcher was being up for prime minister of the, of the conservative party. And instead of talking about all the things that weren't working, about the percentage that they were losing of their workday, about economic output, about all the statistics that people would talk about, mm -hmm. they came up with a brilliant campaign in three words. And those three words were, labor isn't working. And they summed up what was happening in the country. It was also, of course, a brilliant play of words, labor isn't working, but it wasn't. Mm -hmm. I love it. And you know what? That swept Thatcher and the conservatives, the Tory party, into power. So if you want to talk about the impact that simple common words can have, there's a fabulous example of it. You know, common day in the U.S., it's a tagline, but taglines are about simple, clear words. Nike, just do it. How much easier right. can you make it for somebody? That's right. That's right. I love it because, you know, government policy and economic policy and how all of that sort of, you know, trickles down into the society. That's a complex thing for most people to understand. Um, and just boiling it right down to labor isn't working not only says the obvious for people who are living that and experiencing that, but it makes it really easy to comprehend, you know, what uh, the conservatives party platform was and the message that uh, Margaret Thatcher was trying to deliver. Right. And, you know, if we're talking about politicians, if we're talking about politics, it seems only fair to give an example from the U.S., right? But let's go back to JFK and one of his, his inauguration speech in 1961. The very famous saying, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Simple language, but it got to the point of you have to give more. It's not just about you. It's about everybody pulling their weight. It's about everybody coming together. Right. And he made so many speeches uh, in his short time um, in office and said so many other uh, important things, especially during that inauguration speech. But that is the one line that almost everybody in the country can quote verbatim. Exactly. And what this also reminds me is when you are working in international global companies, companies that have offices around the world, that have a workforce where English may not be the primary language, try to use big words, jargon, and let's see mm -hmm. how fast you alienate your workforce. <laughs> That's right. That's right. They're hard enough to understand in your, you know, your first language. And then it has to go through two or three levels of interpretation. And if it's, you know, certain regional dialects and different idiosyncrasies that people have. And it just, you just end up sounding like you have no idea what you're talking about. There was this one company I was working for. It was a global organization. 
and the new executive had come on board and he was talking to an audience that was spread around the world, um, all different jobs too. So it was marketing, it was sales, it was operations, it was production, it was finance, HR, huge, huge swath of people. And I remember I was sitting in, in a sort of a, a dry run and this person used the word aperture. There's an aperture of opportunity. And I remember mm -hmm. sitting there thinking, no, you do not want to use, why are you talking about apertures? You, right. you have a window of opportunity. You have a great slice to do something. But the second you use aperture, I'm thinking about people who are sitting in Poland, people who are sitting in Japan, people who are sitting anywhere around the world. And this has nothing to do with intelligence. This has to do with let's get everybody connected around a central idea around common language and using a big word like that. I just thought, please, but you also have to be open to feedback on how you communicate. Well, that's a great example. Uh, I, I, I did some work um, for a while with a big uh, German uh, manufacturing company. And, you know, we were sort of the U.S. operations and uh, a sub-business at that. And so we were two or three steps away, really, from corporate headquarters in Germany. And so a lot of times, corporate headquarters would develop strategies and plans and tactics and then start rolling those out. And then, you know, out in the business units, we were responsible for then implementing those uh, within, our own, uh, within our own business units. And I remember... Um, they had created all of this great strategy, and of course it was in German. And so, uh, to their credit, they went uh, and had all of that translated so that the rest of us around the world could begin to then talk about that uh, in our local uh, operations. And they had translated this one part of the strategy around accountability and how, um, you know, we're going to hold people accountable for the KPIs that we're trying to drive uh, with this strategy. And for those um, people and situations where you aren't meeting those KPIs, there will be, and I quote, rigorous consequences. <laughs> 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 rigorous consequences. And so we received all the materials and they were like, hey, you need to start rolling this out. And we were like, hey, what in the heck is rigorous consequences? <laughs> that really doesn't play that well over here. We're going to have to come up with a different way maybe uh, to talk about being accountable and what that means and not sort of put it under the thumb of rigorous consequences. But, you know, they were doing their best, and it just it, that particular phrasing just doesn't play, at least here. I don't know if it played anywhere else, but here it just left people scratching their heads. Was waterboarding involved? <laughs> it felt like they were <laughs> Sort of a veiled or maybe non-veiled <laughs> threat there about what we must do, and if we don't, I don't you know. I, I, I love <laughs> no the rigorous what part. Might <laughs> but that's exactly know. right, you know. But it is to your point, rigorous to them in German probably had a different meaning, and there was a uh, they wouldn't be using the word rigorous, but whatever the equivalent was probably had real meaning in Germany, but it doesn't sure. have the exactly. same meaning in the U.S. And it's so easy to go, our words mean something. And so something I always tell people is, 
imagine you're talking to a six-year-old or if you want to imagine an 86-year-old, right? But mm -hmm. somebody who is going to absolutely level you if you talk gobbledygook, if you talk acronyms, if you talk nonsense, because they're just going to go, what are you talking about? Right. And I always think have that kind of a person in your mind when you think you're using clear, simple language, common words, could anybody interview? Because it, it reminds me of the quote who, it turns out, Einstein may or may not have said this. So, you know, I, he may not have said it, but let's not stop us from attributing it to him. If you can't explain it to a six-year-old, you don't understand it yourself. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. And, I, you know, I run into that all the time with internal communications uh, and culture communications and HR type things. And, you know, there's there's a way that corporate speak sort of finds its way into the internal vernacular. And it does everybody a, a, a disservice because, A, that's not how people talk, really. Nobody really talks using corporate jargon like synergies and you know, KPIs and some of the things I myself have said uh, on this podcast, nobody really talks that way. And so when you start communicating that way with your employees, you're immediately alienating them. Um, and so, you know, a really good strategy is two things. One, within Microsoft Word, for example, there's a way to go in and check the grade level of the communications that you have written, not just the word count and the spelling, but actually the grade level uh, to determine at what grade have you written this communication. Where is that? And for I've the, never seen uh, that. Where is it? Um, it is within Word, um, within the section where you check spelling and grammar. Okay. Um, there's another little subsection in there that allows you to also run um, a readability uh, test on it. And fourth grade level is really where most internal communications uh, need to fall. Not because people are ignorant, but because you have such a wide spectrum of education uh, within most uh, organizations. You've got some people um, who either didn't or barely finished high school. You've got some with varying you know, college degrees, and then you have some who uh, are PhDs and have 30 years experience. And so to be able to communicate with all of those people across all of those ranges, you have to make it as simple as possible. Now, your PhDs might go, oh, that's too simple. But it's not really, because they don't talk like that when they're at home with their friends and families. They talk like normal, regular people. And so that's you know what we need to be encouraging when we're doing internal communications is communicating in a way that gets the message across, whether it sounds you know, not fluffed up or not, th that's not even the point. It's most people are going to understand something if it's written at a fourth grade level. And so if we communicate that way, then we can make sure that we're ticking that box that if we're sending something out, we're at least explaining it in a way that everybody in the organization can understand. Are the PhDs going to be a little bit put off by that? Maybe, but what are they? 1% of your organization? The other 99% will really appreciate the simplicity. You know what, though? I, I disagree with you about the PhDs being alienated mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. you actually nailed it earlier when you said, think about how they talk when they're just talking to a neighbor, a friend, a parent, a sister, a brother, a right. niece. They don't yeah. talk. Well, let's let me rephrase. I hope they don't talk. OK, they, they, they talk more like normal people. OK, now. Sure. 
I'm putting a huge banner on what's normal. Come after me if you want. But I'm just talking an everyday person you can understand. And the fact is, I, I often use the example about doctors, right? How many times have you been in a doctor's office and they are talking to you in such technical jargon language that you have no idea what they're talking about? And so I often use the example, and this is from my own life. I, I, and this is how I tell people, nope, uh, a PhD, a doctor, a highly educated person, you're going to sound smarter using simple language. So... Mm -hmm. I could tell you I was born with a ventricular septal defect with a thrill of five out of six. Or I could tell you I was born with a broken heart. Mm -hmm. Which one of those two makes right. you understand exactly what was wrong? Not the technical part of it, but what happened, right? right? And you know yeah. what's most interesting? Yeah. My childhood heart doctor otherwise known as a cardiologist, my childhood <laughs> cardiologist actually spoke in that language. You have a broken heart. You have this. You have that. He used very simple language to convey difficult terms. Right. Because that's also how you can calm down a terrified parent who suddenly finds out their child isn't the healthy child they thought he or she was. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I love that point, because not only does it make it simpler to understand, but it automatically conveys empathy. It does. Because I'm taking the time to explain to you what this situation is in a way that you will understand, not because I'm smarter than you and I have to do this to dumb it down, but because I care about you. I want you to understand what's happening in a way that makes it easy for you to understand. There's no better way to show empathy and communications than speaking in the way that your receivers, listeners, uh, completely understand. That is it, just the height of caring for people. Yeah? It is. And it enables your listener to ask you questions, right? To to ask you questions without feeling stupid, without feeling ignorant. And so I give that example, but now I'm going to give a caveat to that. Okay. And, and here's the caveat is that there actually are times when it's okay to use the gobbledygook and the acronyms. And what I mean, let's take this example of my doctor, my childhood heart doctor talking, you have a broken heart. If he's at a convention, a medical convention, with the latest findings on heart disease in children, you have my permission to double down on the acronyms and the gobbledygook. But you know who your audience is, they're qualified, and you know they know the terms you're talking about. Yes. And that yes. is the proper place agree. in which you should be talking about your expertise because that also then shows people you know the language of that group of people of that tribe and you are therefore part of them. So there is a time and a place for it, but at a medical convention, you know everybody in that room knows what you're talking about. That comes up every quarter uh, with public companies that I work with who have to do their earnings calls. And so they get on the earnings calls, and on those calls are investors and analysts and everybody um, who speaks that sort of highfalutin financial language. Um, and that's exactly the way you should be speaking with, uh, with, those, with those folks. But after that call is over, and when you now need to communicate your earnings for your employees— you cannot use those same words. 
exactly you cannot right. use that that same kind of messaging. You have to talk about the progress of the company the way most people understand finances, which is how they run their own household, which is, hey, we spent a little more eating out this month, and as a result, we weren't able to do X, Y, and Z. So next quarter, we need to pare back our uh, dining out budget so that we are able to take that extra money and invest it over here that will have you know bigger uh, results for us. When you talk about it in a way like that, that people truly understand because that's how they run their own finances, it makes it so easy for people to understand how that business operates, what the goals are, and then what they have to do individually to make sure that they're you know, driving that success. And it's because you've taken the time to explain in a way that matters to them. Not that matters to you necessarily, but that matters to them. And so to what you're saying, I would say flip it. And what I mean by that is the message that you talk to your employees, you can still use that opening message for analysts, for investors, for regulators. You use that same opening message, which is the clear, simple language. But then you go into the, you absolutely go into the jargon and the acronyms for the investors because that's who you know you're talking to. But the overall message yeah. is still the same. Yes. When, so, I, when I worked at Newell Brands, we, we started out all of our conversations about earnings around the fact that we have, you know, 110 different brands and they are organized into four categories, how our consumers live, learn, work and play. And every result that we talked about for all of those businesses were in those four categories, live, learn, work and play. Easy peasy to understand. This product, exactly. this is in the live area. This product, this is in the play area. Then we can get into a little more of the semantics around the actual, you know, financial stuff that matters. But that makes it easy for anybody who is a potential investor, whether they're, you know, a rock star analyst or, you know, 73-year-old grandmother who's got, you know, 401k that she's got to do something with. It just makes it a lot easier uh, for people to understand what business you're in. I completely agree. And so with that... We are gonna wrap up what it means and how we've been talking about using clear and simple language to make sure that everyone knows what you're talking about. Alrighty. So let's take a look back at the top three things we discussed today. Um, number one, using clear and simple language. Um, as a, a boss for a long time ago told me when I was an intern, he said, nickel words work much better than those that cost a buck. So the more nickel words you can use, the better off you are. Simple, easy, clear language um, that people use in their everyday uh, conversations uh, is exactly the way to break through, uh, particularly all of the internal communications noise uh, that happens around folks. Number two, using the same message that Jason was just talking about, clear and simple language, Remember, if you're an international company or a setting, that you may be thinking you're using clear, simple language, but what are the cultural and language barriers that you may have to get through to ensure that everyone around the world and in any culture and any job can understand what you're doing? So another sort of layer just to think about when you think you're absolutely clear, will anyone around the world be able to understand your message? That's great. And the third one is... Speaking simply doesn't mean speaking down to your audience. You don't want to have people feel like, oh, gosh, we think these people are so ignorant that we're just going to have to really dumb it down for them. That's not the goal. The goal is for it to be simple, not dummy proof, but simple. Um, 
And there are ways to phrase that and ways to communicate using simple, clear language um, so that it doesn't sound like um, you're speaking down to your audience. And that wraps up this week's episode. Thank you for listening and all the comments and suggestions we've received. Please keep them coming. You can reach us on social, email, smoke signals, any way you know how. But please let us know anything we can talk about or address with you there. That's great. So you can do that off of dolessbad.com. Um, also, any of our social channels, uh, do underscore less underscore bad. Uh, we appreciate all of that feedback. Um, next episode, uh, Monday, November 30th, which will be Cyber Monday, which means you're not going to be doing any work anyway. You're going to be sitting around buying stuff. So while you're doing that, you might as well be listening to Jason and Madeline talk about doing less bad. Um, what that episode will be about is how you can have any message heard, understood, and remembered. Uh, and of course, one of the ways to do that uh, is to use simple language. Um, so we're going to focus on that for our next episode, but then again, that's two weeks from now. So who the heck knows what may be going on between now and then, particularly, uh, with the Thanksgiving holiday here in the U S. Um, I know we're both looking forward to some time with friends and family. Hope that, uh, you are, uh, as well. So until then, uh, we hope that you do less bad in whatever way is easiest for you. And we'll talk to you next time. Jenny, take us out. You've made it through another episode of Do Less Bad, that podcast about how companies can do less bad in order to do more good. Check us out at dolessbad.com. Until next time, stop fretting over doing more good and just do less bad.